Hello and welcome to the second season of Pontificating Across the Pond. In this season's third episode, Som and I talk about India's nuclear journey. This is an episode we wanted to record since early May for reasons which will become obvious to you. But we're quite happy that we're able to release it on the 15th anniversary of the day Manmohan Singh signed the deal with US President George W. Bush. So on the 18th of May, 1974, uh, India conducted its first peaceful uh, nuclear test. And uh, that opened up many uh, decades of uh, just intrigue and uh, nuclear politics and just this whole quest to stabilize uh, uh, the subcontinent uh, around this uh, nuclear theme. But uh, Uday, as we've been discussing uh, this is a story that didn't really begin in 1974. Uh, it started possibly a decade earlier. Uh, so why don't we just start from the beginning? It did, in fact. The genesis of India wanting or feeling the need to acquire nuclear weapons was first the defeat that China handed out to India in the 1962 uh, Sino-Indian War. And uh, India's America's distrust of India wasn't as deep as we've uh, come to recognize in the 70s or when we look back at our history now and we think, oh, India was always aligned with uh, the Soviet Union and hence uh, America always gave India a hard time. That's not entirely true because in the 1960s, uh, obviously, America helped India both militarily with other forms of aid in the form of uh, aid dollars to develop and also food. But after the 1962 war, the U.S. first woke up to China's newly united might. And uh, the first glimpses of China's territorial ambitions were displayed on the world stage for the first time. And America in the 1960s had absolutely no foothold in China itself. They had very few assets in the region because, remember, the wider region was controlled entirely by the Soviet Union. So there was no way for America to be at China's doorstep. And uh, obviously, it turned to India to help gauge Chinese nuclear activity. Uh, There's this big defensive wall, which we know as the Himalayas, in between the two countries. Uh, But that was a that was hardly a deterrent to the Americans. And in 1965, and this is just after uh, the second India-Pakistan war, Uh, There was this uh, naval captain, Manmohan Singh Kohli, who I think mostly outside uh, mountaineering circles, he's quite unknown. So he's an unknown entity outside mountaineering circles. But uh, Captain Manmohan Kohli, and must hasten to add, he's from the Indian Navy. He was seconded to the ITBP. So the equivalent uh, army rank would be a colonel. He shot to fame in 1965 when he put nine men on his uh, of his expedition atop Mount Everest. And that was a world record which stood for 17 years. But the second he climbed back down from uh, Everest, that climbing season in 65, uh, he was approached by the Intelligence Bureau and he was asked to uh, get to Alaska as quickly as possible with a team of five Indian climbers who were all intelligence operatives, mind you. So he was tasked to get to Alaska and the task was to climb uh, Mount McKinley, 
with a mixed team of Americans and Indians. And this was also so the Americans could gauge the uh, expertise, the levels of expertise uh, of this Indian team. Uh, the motive was actually to place plutonium uh, canisters, which would act as nuclear listening devices at or near the summit. And this would, of course, have to be replicated in the Indian subcontinent, where this payload was expected to listen in on Chinese nuclear activity, which was uh, going to be conducted in the vast expanse that uh, Tibet is. Uh, so CIA's first preference was to place these listening devices uh, atop Kanchanjunga. And to remind our listeners, it is the third highest mountain uh, in the world, third highest peak in the world. And at more than 8,500 meters, uh, it is well within, well in the death zone, which is above uh, altitudes of uh, 8,000 meters. So Captain Kohli immediately uh, uh, blackballed this idea. He said that it didn't make... Uh, physical sense to go that high and place this device and also if the extra payload was about 45 pounds at that altitude it is the difference between life and death and if you spend an extra three hours assembling this nuclear listening device at an altitude of 8500 meters then those guys are never going to descend and never going to come back alive so given Captain Coley's uh, reputation in the mountaineering circles the Americans were quite wise to listen to him and uh, he instead suggested a peak called Nanda Kot, and this was in Uttarakhand. And at 6,800 meters, it was both quite easily summited, and climbers could also spend the extra hours needed to install the device. But this now proved to be a very hard sell to the CIA because they wanted the peak to be above 7,000 meters. So in their minds, they could actually monitor Chinese nuclear activity. And hence, Captain Kohli was forced to come up with another suggestion, which was the nearby Nanda Devi. And the two-peak uh, massive that Nanda Devi forms, it's quite ideal to place these uh, listening devices because it's oriented east to west, which gives these listening devices uh, the maximum possible coverage. Uh, so in the climbing season of 65, Captain Kohli and his team, they climb up with uh, seven plutonium canisters and they make quite an incident-free uh, climb up to Camp 4, which is just 500 meters below the 7,800-meter So At about uh, 7,300 meters, the weather turns inclement. And... Uh, at, at that altitude, inclement weather means a blinding blizzard and a fight for survival. So the team had to turn back. And the CIA obviously wasn't very impressed with this. They tried impressing upon the captain once he came back that they, he should have seek, sought clearance from the CIA, to which the captain simply said that uh, if I'm in Delhi, I can ask Washington's permission. But if I'm atop a mountain, then I'm the leader and it's my prerogative to bring the team back or uh, ask them to stay. And uh, so they came back uh, down that year and the weather never, never allowed them another chance uh, that year. And when this team came back, uh, both for their safety and the safety of the nuclear plutonium devices, they came back without the payload. So they'd secured these uh, seven canisters at Camp 4. So at an altitude of 7,300 meters, they secured these uh, uh, seven canisters and they climbed back down. And the mission was that the next year, 1966, uh, around May, when the climbing uh, season opens and the weather permits you to start climbing again, the team would go back 
and they would uh, summit and they'd place these devices uh, atop the Nandadri summit. But to the team's horror, when they returned a year later, one of the seven canisters was missing. And uh, I mean, the risks of uh, this canister making its way to a water source like the Kishan Ganga were ill, like, un- incalculably high. It's a water source for millions of people. Uh, people and uh, the americans obviously weren't very helpful because we uh, couldn't have american presence on indian soil so it was down to this climbing team to go back up over three successive climbing seasons trying to find this uh, missing payload but they weren't successful and plutonium i'm guessing probably has a half life of 50 years and uh, we still haven't found uh, these canisters so that was actually the genesis of uh, India being interested in gauging nuclear activity in her neighborhood. And of course, then that leads into the 1970s, where India felt the need for a nuclear weapon uh, much more starkly. Right. And uh, I I just hope that in some months or years time, we're not recording an episode on the uh, fallout of that seventh canister. Uh, (laughs) But uh, uh, when we kind of move into the 70s, the nuclear test in 74 at some level, uh, I think for most uh, observers from outside really felt uh, like a response to 71, which clearly was India's uh, potentially only decisive victory over Pakistan. So uh, was was this really to kind of set a marker in the relationships between the two countries and also, uh, you know, to the entire global uh, balance out there, you know, between the Soviet Union and the US, uh, that India is a power to reckon with in the subcontinent, uh, or were there other reasons uh, around the test that followed the seventy-one war? Uh, see, in a way, you acquire nuclear weapons to protect yourself from a much larger, more aggressive enemy. Uh, it could be your neighbor, in our case, China, or it could not be. I mean, it could be the Americans for the Soviet Union, even though they weren't uh, technically neighbors. So it's almost always to acquire this insurance policy against the aggression of a larger, more powerful neighbor. So in that sense, I think India's tests in 74, and you must bear in mind if uh, the 71 war was culminated in December of 1971. So uh, two and a half years is barely enough time to uh, uh, quote-unquote, peaceful nuclear explosion. So, obviously, the planning and uh, the moves were put well in place in the 60s. It wasn't something which was uh, which the Indian establishment embarked upon only in the 70s. It could have, it definitely precipitated India's need to acquire these weapons uh, simply because in 1971, when uh, India marched into uh, East Pakistan, birthed the nation of uh, Bangladesh vivisected Pakistan. They lost half their territory, half their population. uh, And Pakistan's dreams of encircling India were over with the 1971 war. Uh, Again, something which is not very uh, well acknowledged in the history of that period is that uh, the U.S. Navy's uh, Task Force Force 74, which belongs to their 7th Fleet, was uh, actually en route to the Bay of Bengal. And it was led by the largest warship in the world, USS Enterprise. And uh, 
on board this flotilla, on board the, the USS Enterprise, more than 70 bombers and fighter aircrafts and accompanying the Enterprise were a flotilla of powerful destroyers. And this show of strength was meant to deter India from any quote-unquote misadventures in East Pakistan. And if needed, these would target Indian military installations uh, in the Arabian Sea and the Bay of Bengal. Uh, I always think they probably needn't have bothered because the war was over within two weeks. Pakistan's defences lay in tatters, not just in the East, but also in the West. Pakistan's air force was blown out of the sky. And uh, the East, as we all know, surrendered uh, in less than two weeks. Uh, But what I think is, again, very uh, not acknowledged enough is that because of a pact that India signed with Russia earlier on in that year, Russia dispatched her own nuclear armed flotilla from Vladivostok on December 13, 1971. And uh, this was bang in the middle of the hostilities of the 71 war between India and Pakistan. And uh, that 10th operative battle group was dispatched to actually deter the British and American Navy from harassing Indian, uh, from harassing the Indian Navy and uh, targeting and bombing our position. So imagine American fright when they expected to just waltz into the Bay of Bengal and the Arabian Sea, just show up and just uh, cower India into submission. They were actually met with uh, their counterpart, with their equal adversaries. Uh, they were met by the Soviet Union's uh, 10th operative battle group. And uh, I mean, suffice to say, there were obviously no misadventures that the Americans engaged in. And this is the event which precipitated uh, the Indian establishment's thinking, Indira Gandhi's thinking into the belief that India needed her own nuclear weapons to deter any such misadventures from uh, the American side or the British side. And by this time in the 70s, uh, because of India's unmistakable uh, tilt towards the Soviet Union, uh, they wanted to target India. And that is uh, the reason India went ahead full steam with her own nuclear weapons development program. And I think in 74, when India conducted her own tests, uh, something quite similar uh, precipitated in Pakistan, where... uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto now really wanted to acquire these weapons. And he imagined this uh, sort of national effort where he said that, you know, every Pakistani will eat grass if we have to, but we shall acquire nuclear weapons. That was the thinking. It was made into a national obsession, a national mission to acquire these weapons in something which is eerily similar to how India approached her own nuclear uh, missile program. Uh, but but the fundamental difference being that uh, India was really preparing uh, to be a part of the larger global world order, right? I mean, the threat that they had seen was really from a larger force uh, like the US. Uh, and Pakistan's being more a response to their uh, larger enemy. So, you know, just kind of going back to the point that you made when, uh, you know, nations decide to build their own nuclear arsenal, uh, is generally in response to a larger force. Uh, in India's case, was it really just the threat of um, being outmaneuvered by allies of Pakistan in a future conflict of a similar scale? Or uh, was it also a posturing of a country that felt that its position just you know, globally in terms of the size of the democracy, the size of the power that they felt they needed to wield uh, was uh, you know required to be showcased because Pakistan's response feels very direct. 
uh, India feels like a much larger kind of a play back then. Possibly was because India did want to uh, climb into that echelon of countries which really mattered on the global stage, and uh, I think you quite rightly put it that India's uh, ambitions were twofold. It obviously wanted to have a deterrent. It did not want to depend on the safety of a nuclear umbrella provided by an ally, because no no ally is an all weather ally. Uh, possibly, with the exception of the Americans and the British for the past two uh, hundred odd years, no ally has turned out to be an all weather ally. Uh, so, India's ambitions were obviously to give herself the protection of the nuclear umbrella of her own nuclear umbrella and also to make a mark at the world stage to be able to converse with the likes of uh, the americans the british the french on equal footing right so we we literally have a 24 year literally to the day gap between the first test uh, that that india uh, did in pokhran and then the second one uh, in 1998 um, what what kind of precipitated that and uh, were the events uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, that uh, obviously there were successive governments, different political parties, absolutely completely different uh, uh, ambitions. Um, but what was the lead up to the second tests and why didn't we see anything uh, in between and why was that specific time 24 years later uh, considered necessary to uh, perform the second tests? Uh, and in a quite neat coincidence uh, for the religious and spiritual among our listeners, uh, so India's first nuclear weapons test on May 18, 1974, followed, like you said, almost exactly 24 years later, were both uh, Buddh Purnimas. So they were both, uh, which is why, in fact, both the tests were called Smiling Buddha because they fell on uh, the night of Buddh Purnima. And I, I don't really know the significance of it, but that's uh, just a neat little aside. Uh, in the late 70s and 80s, of course, there was uh, very busy jostling happening, uh, very busy jostling happening between the two militaries of uh, India and Pakistan. I think after 71, after that vivisection of the nation that we spoke about, Pakistan decided that it was in... Uh, it was not in a ready shape to take on the entire might of the Indian army, rightly so. And uh, they probably also decided that it was futile to face a uniformed army ever again. But they also obviously wanted to acquire nuclear weapons. And that project was started in earnest by Zulfikar Ali Bhutto as early as 1972. And again, remember, the 1971 war only concluded in December. So just within a few months, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto uh, embarked on this national mission to acquire nuclear weapons. And uh, Project 706 uh, and Kahuta, where there, uh, where this facility was uh, built under the aegis of AQ Khan, it became front page news as early as 1978. And... Uh, in typical fashion, it uh, had almost nothing to do with Western pressure because the West just wasn't aware what was happening in Kahuta. It uh, had, in a way, everything to do with Western shame because for years, the West had known about Pakistan's uh, weapons program, but they'd chosen to look the other way. Uh, and because this wasn't uh, in the press, the West was quite happy to let Pakistan do what it was doing under the wraps as long as it wasn't uh, out there on front pages and as long as the complicity of some of uh, 
the West's European members wasn't made public, they were quite happy. And uh, which is why when the new, uh, news of the extent of enrichment was constantly suppressed. And uh, ultimately, the West was forced to intervene when Kahuta became front page news in 1978 because uh, two Western diplomats uh, wanted to go, the French ambassador and his first secretary, they wanted to go have a look at Kahuta for themselves. And uh, in turn, they were beaten up by uh, the Pakistani security guard stationed outside Kahuta. And that is when it turned into a diplomatic outrage. Uh, you know, in a way, Pakistan could have uh, the nuclear weapons, they could continue enriching, and the West would look the other way. But if uh, a couple of Pakistani security guards beat up the French ambassador, uh, that is what uh, tipped uh, Western uh, action into actually uh, materializing. And uh, at that time, uh, President Ford in America was advised to uh, conduct airstrikes on Kahuta. It was seconded by uh, this uh, Yale-educated intellectual who was brought out of retirement by President Carter called Gerard Smith. He was also... Uh, he also advised the president that nuclear tests on Kahuta were the easiest uh, way to end this menace once and for all. And as early as June 1980, BBC screened a documentary called Project 706, The Islamic Bomb. And that was the first and the fullest investigation into AQ Khan's illicit enrichment program, which was ongoing in Pakistan at that time. And this is the event which caused attitudes to really harden in the West, uh, because it was always uh, under the guise of civilian nuclear power that uh, the weapons program was carried out. And the West obviously felt betrayed. And by 1980, caught, uh, nine, Towards the end of 1980, uh, Carter knew that his days in office were numbered. Uh, President Zia over in Pakistan, who had already taken over Pakistan in a military coup, it, he sensed it. He held out for much more than, uh, in his eyes, what was dangled was a pittance of an aid package of just 400 million on offer and about 90 million in military hardware. President Zia just bided his time till Carter was voted out. And eventually, when the next administration came in, uh, he was quite right to do that because the uh, Taliban, uh, the threat of uh, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan had fully materialized. And now all bets were off. Pakistan could continue to enrich their nuclear weapons. America would send in uh, Hercules transporters, Chinooks, their air defense radars, uh, artillery, ammunition, and uh, a military aid which hasn't really stopped for 30 years since the early 1980s. So 1980s was really the time when the West and India could have conducted a preemptive strike on Kahuta to end uh, the nuclear menace in the subcontinent once and for all. But And there's some intelligence reports which have since been declassified in the West uh, that India, India herself wanted to carry out uh, airstrikes to uh, destroy Kahuta. And uh, quite interestingly, they were planning to do this in conjunction with the Israeli Air Force. And obviously, Indian uh, documents will never see the day of light. But this is what some uh, decommissioned documents, uh, declassified documents, sorry, from the West, point us to that uh, R&AW was uh, quite active in assessing this threat. They were quite aware of the extent of the threat. And uh, even a really forward-thinking uh, general uh, in 1981, he was only a lieutenant general, Sundarji, he uh, 
penned a memo called the Osirak Contingency, which was discussed in which one of the, uh, an air chief marshal at that time, Dilbag Singh, was put in charge of this operation. So India's JAG squadrons were practicing low-flying, uh, low-level flying simulation runs with 2,000-pound bombs. And Pakistan was uh, uh, reported to be building up her, her, her own air defense uh, systems to guard against this uh, incursion into Kahuta. So 80s, I think, were a very interesting time. Obviously, we've uh, brushed it under the carpet because we have no researchers who bring these things out uh, into the open. So these things never see the day of light. But the 1980s were actually very, very interesting. And we've spoken about Siachen before, which in turn precipitated Kargil, which followed the 98 uh, nuclear test. So there's a neat thread binding all these moves uh, by both uh, armies and both governments and across the decades. Right. And uh, so after these, um, you know, failed initiatives on kind of uh, stopping uh, Pakistan's uh, march towards becoming a nuclear power, um, India kind of went ahead and uh, uh, on this extremely auspicious day, uh, performed the second uh, <laughs> uh, test in Pokhran. And uh, what, what, what I find interesting is that, uh, um, you know, when you were talking about uh, all-weather allies, uh, I think a key uh, thread to the tests and the, the entire uh, uh, development of the weapons program on both sides of the border has always been supported by someone on the other side or someone has uh, looked away uh, and allowed either Pakistan or India to continue its development. Uh, with Pokhran, also we saw India switch attention to uh, their American relationship. Uh, and uh, uh, the relationship with the Soviet Union obviously uh, fell apart uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, but Russia was still always considered to be uh, a close Indian friend. Uh, but there was a very conscious choice made by Vajpayee uh, at the time to align interests uh, with the Americans uh, who were pretty much uh, at the forefront of uh, creating the entire narrative around, um, you know, peaceful uh, tests by nations across uh, the world. And uh, I think at some level, the relationship between uh, Russia and the US in being able to define these factions across the world uh, was a lot more stressed at that point in time. But what, what was different about the uh, tests in 98. There wasn't a war that had happened a few years before that, uh, like in 74. There wasn't um, even necessarily a very objective threat out there from any large country. Uh, India had already established itself as a nuclear power uh, 24 years ago. What led to... Uh, most of us have seen um, John Abraham's movie, so we know what happened on the day of the tests uh, in, in whatever succinct way it was... Uh, <laughs> told to us through that movie. But I think just to get a sense of what are the conditions that led the Vajpayee government to uh, make this uh, show of power? Uh, I'm just theorizing here, but possibly after the 91 uh, economic reforms with uh, swath of American companies uh, coming into India and India's nuclear weapons program, uh, must one must remember, was 
already on a quote unquote war footing uh, led by when the government was led by pv narsimha rao in a way vajpayee inherited that mantle and he wanted to conduct those tests in the brief time that he would end up having in office in his first term because remember that government was booted out after 30 odd days so in a way a show of strength possibly to the west that despite these uh, reforms which have now ensured that india's fate is intrinsically tied economically tied to the fortunes of the west india will still maintain an independent security policy and india was not going to give up that uh, give up india's own uh, own objectives india would continue to be an actor for india's own self interest and again something which i think all of us uh, underappreciate is that india's security establishment india's bureaucracy has always looked out for india's national interests very well they haven't been laid at the altar of uh, political expediency they've always ensured that india has always been put first so in a way i think it was a message which india wanted to send out to the west that despite all these linkages we might have in terms of people to people relationships because the first wave of indian uh, immigrants into the um, into the us had established themselves they were becoming uh, a force to be reckoned with uh, all the economic ties that we are going to have uh, that we've already had in the seven odd years and that we would have in the future none of that would dictate india's security policy right um but let's just kind of talk about this tilt in the relationships right uh, how much of uh, what we saw post uh, 98 uh, in terms of um, um, one is india kind of outlining this doctrine um, around their uh, program very clearly uh, for the american government at that point in time for us to be uh, considered part of uh, you know treaties and organizations that would allow us to uh, build on the entire nuclear program uh, for peaceful uh, um, consumption too but i i think uh, just from a strategic point of view and i think we see some of the uh, fallout of it uh, today when uh, we are stuck in a, a situation between you know china and pakistan uh, with possibly even the uh, russians not necessarily uh, in our uh, corner of the uh, fight right now and the americans uh, especially with trump anyway you don't know who side they are on at any given point in time um and have continued over the last uh, you know nearly 20 years since uh, 911 being large supporters at least financially uh, to the pakistan government and the uh, um uh, the entire uh, uh, you know fight on terrorism uh, in in the subcontinent we have at some level uh, just lost some of that much needed uh, you know support that we had from the russians uh, to just have them as a, a fulcrum in the uh, region um do you think some of that kind of began with uh, watchpay and successive governments outreach towards the americans who really haven't necessarily been someone who have been strong allies to the indians but more uh, you know referees who have been wanting to kind of keep the peace in the subcontinent uh, what what are your thoughts on that and do you feel that this was where it all kind of began in a way yes and if we were going to have uh, 
India's first quote unquote conservative prime minister being in power there's obviously uh, no way he was going to continue with the old policy of aligning with the soviets one uh, the 91 reforms had already ensured that india's fate would be much more uh, intrinsically tied with that of the west rather than the soviet union and obviously the soviet union had collapsed uh, uh, it had pretty much ceased to be a power towards the end of 1990 and disintegrated in the 90s and at the same time uh, the other co- soviet or communist bulwark in yugoslavia also was busy disintegrating so in a way it was Yes, India aligning with the West quite unambiguously. Uh, India's first conservative prime minister saying that our economic policies in the past have failed us. Our security alliances in the past have probably uh, not done us uh, as well as they should have. So it was quite a marked tilt towards America, and I would say in the decades since. it has proven to be quite prescient because uh india's alignment with america has given india many more economic opportunities has given india many more military opportunities and what we also must not forget was towards the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 1990s america had also lost interest in the subcontinent because the soviet union had disintegrated and they retreated from afghanistan so they also pretty much had no use for pakistan and some of their duplicitous behavior was first coming to the fore the islamization of the army which was uh, carried out on a war footing by president uh, general zia ul haq was quite evident for the world to see so it was also an opportune time for them to distance themselves from uh, pakistan in the subcontinent and focus on their ties with india so it worked i think to both of our advantage right um so just finally kind of uh, unpacking some of the pieces around uh, both india and pakistan's uh, nuclear journeys um fundamentally there clearly has been a difference in the way it's been viewed uh, by the rest of the world uh, right you touched upon it in uh, terms of uh, how ak khan was pretty much at the forefront of proliferation uh, across fairly uh dangerous states uh, like uh, you know north korea and libya uh, getting access to uh, uh, nuclear secrets um how, how important in in that way was uh, has india's uh, overall approach uh, you know right from the doctrine that they kind of laid out uh, post 98 uh, to the way the world has perceived india as a nuclear power versus uh, pakistan as a nuclear power uh, o- over the last two decades I think India's behavior uh, in '74, right after '98, uh, portrayed India as a responsible nuclear power because uh, many have said that Vajpayee was very hasty in announcing India's nuclear doctrine uh, right at the time that the tests were conducted because oh look at Pakistan they still have such a vague nuclear doctrine but it was essential. for india to be portrayed as a responsible nuclear power and the difference like you said is there for the entire world to see now whereas pakistan has become the node of nuclear proliferation if today libya iraq north korea have or even an, another unacknowledged uh, nuclear power south africa any of them have nuclear weapons uh, secrets or tradecraft it is because aq khan in pakistan ensured that 
And that difference is very stark for all to see. Again, coming to the nuclear doctrine, Pakistan's doctrine, and I have some sympathy for that, is intentionally vague. And it's always widely presumed to have just one uh, rung on the escalation ladder in that if our territory is threatened, if our army is threatened, if any major population center is threatened, then we reserve this uh, right to strike first. And uh, India, in a way, has many experts think has always shied away from uh, inciting that first strike because you do not want to incite that first nuclear strike on your own forces because now Pakistan also has a growing arsenal of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, but again, by not announcing their nuclear doctrine, they've never really been trusted by the West. And uh, a one key distinction that now is ever more stark than ever before is the fact that the safety of these nuclear weapons uh, under the Indian leadership, under the Indian security establishment, the armed forces is beyond reproach and question. Everybody in the world is rest assured that these weapons are safe. A responsible government, a responsible power is holding on to them and they will be guarded. And that security does not, that safety that the West feels with respect to India's nuclear weapons does not extend to our Western neighbor. Uh, Many CIA officers, senior army, senior military officers uh, from the U.S. establishment have spoken out as to how scared they are that these weapons will fall into the hands of uh, rogue elements within their armed forces. Again, remember this Islamization of the army, of the Pakistani army, which was started in the 1980s. Uh, in a way, reached its peak in the late 2000s when Pakistan was helping America wage the war on terror in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And many, many, many elements in the Pakistani army, the Navy, the Air Force did not like this complicity that the Pakistani state had under Parvez Musharraf. And many of them, in fact, turned on the army themselves. And uh, we've I've written about this before, attacks on uh, secure containment on the special services group uh, close to Rawalpindi. The naval base in Karachi was attacked late in the 2000s. Uh, again, that housed some nuclear weapons too. The army headquarters in Rawalpindi was attacked. So the West does not go to bed at night thinking that these weapons are safe. And I think that's now proven to be the biggest difference. But having said all of that, we've also come to realize that Pakistan possibly is not as irrational a state actor as we all assumed it to be. Uh, and their escalation ladder probably has a few more rungs than just the one that we've always uh, assumed it to have. Because they haven't really behaved irresponsibly with their weapons. They might be irresponsible with their statements. They might incite trouble uh, in Indian territory, again, in the 2000s, which was uh, a byproduct of the bloody civil war happening in their own country. But they've also proven to be quite responsible with the weapons that they themselves hold. Uh, so the pretense that India's nuclear weapon back in 98, uh, I'm talking of, was any more legitimate than a quote-unquote rogue Pakistani nuclear weapon. Like you said, I don't think we should buy into that pretense. Either both of our weapons were responsible, both of our weapons were legitimate, or both of ours were rogue. But I think the difference since in the 22 years since has been in our behaviors. And that has proven to the world that one can become a responsible nuclear power. And I think, uh, suffice to say, the other one has a long way to go to build that confidence. On a lot of fronts, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, many, but, I think on, but, I, but I think on that 
optimistic note overall we've we managed to cover three decades of the nuclear journeys of india and pakistan in, in fairly good time um but this is an episode uh, i think that uh, we've been wanting to do for the listeners for a while so um it's it's been great putting this together and uh, catch you soon today and catch everyone else uh, soon on the other side